Hey, hey Jed. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. You told me you're going to dress like a pilgrim and, and look at you. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, you've got your good Thanksgiving themed T-shirt on here from WKRP. So at least you uh, are uh, representing us well in terms of dressing for the occasion. WKRP's iconic iconic turkey drop. We'll put a link to it in the show notes if we can find a, find a copy of the episode. Well, welcome back, Jed. This is like a twofer. It's our thing. Our, our special uh, wonky folk uh, Thanksgiving episode. And also uh, uh, you're welcome back. It's great to see you. Well, it's great to be back. And um, I did write a post on the, on the trip and it was just an incredible one. And I do genuinely feel great gratitude for all the people that contributed in my absence uh, to keep uh, charter folk going. And, you know, it's interesting. There were a lot of moments when, uh, frankly, education policy was not at the top of my mind as as we were walking. And then it's just striking, Andy. Conversation after conversation tends to migrate, you know, uh, toward co conversations about education. And I've written a lot about education in Spain, and it was striking to me like how much has changed in Spain since 2015 um, in public education. And I just feel like uh, and some of these things are foundational pieces, like what's going on with the concertata schools in general, they're the charter schools in Spain, but what's going on with religious education in general in Spain uh, and the bifurcation of, of policy proposals coming from the left and coming from the right. Uh, it's happening, of course, in our country, we talk about it all the time, but it's striking to see that it's happening in Spain and in many of the other countries where I had pilgrims who are walking beside me for some section of the trip. Well, I don't doubt your ability to bring any conversation around to education. So I sort of feel as if the pilgrimage <laughs> isn't hard enough. I'm sure it was really rough on a few of them who are like, we have to talk more about charter schools. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, talk about, say a little bit more about Spain. That, that bifurcation, that's interesting. Like, like what, what are you, what are you seeing there? Well, I remember at, at one point that like Darrell Bradford and I were talking about uh, uh, about the issue of, hey, charter schools need to build more middle-class schools in order to build our political strength. And it reminded me of being in Spain in 2015, where I went to visit a lot of the concertata schools. And the concertata schools, they are like charter schools, but there are some very important differences. But just for shorthand, let's call them charters or something similar to. And I remember at the end of one of my visits, I said to the, the lead of the school, so what do you guys do around advocacy? What do you do to make sure that your funding isn't cut and that they don't take away your facilities? And what's going on with all of the other regulatory matters as they relate to charter schools? And the guy was just puzzled. He was just, what are you talking about? Wait, like advocacy, like, like somebody would go after us? I mean, we got all sorts of middle-class parents in our schools and no one would dare go after our schools. So we don't even need any advocacy, right? Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at like 2019, the concertata schools really became a target from, from the left. And um, starting in 2019, there is a big push now to try and defund a lot of the concertata schools or to heat new regulation on them. And now you have a bunch of people writing about the need for the concertata schools to get their acts together. And, um, and then, of course, people want to label the concertata schools as all religious schools or not all religious schools, depending on whatever their political agenda is. But it just, um, you know, spoke to me that you got to stay on top of these conditions in these different countries. I've continued to tell the story about middle-class concertado schools in Spain being safer than schools in the United States. 
But actually what we're seeing is the story has evolved. And unless you stay on top of these things, you find that you're, you're um, spreading stories that are just no longer accurate. That's really interesting. I used to spend some time in Spain, but it's been it's been a while, so I'm not up to speed on any of that. Uh, but that is, it, and it, like a little bit, I'd, I'd be interested in how that's playing out elsewhere because you do American politics often end up following a little bit European politics. You see, sort of, you know, rises of different kinds of of, of political factions and so forth. And I mean, you obviously saw that. So there was hints all across Europe that sort of presage what happened here with with Donald Trump. Um, What's a okay? So, what's a non-education charter school memory? Just quickly about the trip. Like, what, what like, let's say it, you, you're just back from just such an amazing experience. What's like something that just like really stays with you or stands out? Well, I talked about this in the post that I wrote. My favorite moments were the people that we met new and the people that were walking for just profoundly personal, deep reasons and. Um, when you have a chance to to walk with people who have recently lost children uh, or they've lost their parents uh, or they've lost their spouses. Um, uh, we've had, I, there was one story too about a person who started the trip having recently just broken up with their longtime relationship. And then that person, you know, that person's partner was waiting for her, you know, at the, at the cathedral in Leon and they reunited. They're just, and, and it's just so striking how, on the Camino, you just start talking with people about deep and important things so much faster than you do in most other social contexts. And it's amazing. Amy and I are still swapping texts with people, whatever. At some point, it'll dissipate, I'm sure. But you make relationships that are important ones. And um, I, I know I'll be thinking about them for, for many, many years to come. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So you're back. What are the, what's the, what are the, what are the plans for Thanksgiving? uh in in your house what's the what's the traditional charter school dish that you guys cook <laughs> well i'm in i'm in chicago and my um my my wife's family is here and we have a long-standing fight about cranberries uh, mm -hmm. i i personally believe that you know canned cranberries or even cranberries that are just textureless where they get the skin out of it all that stuff i'm sorry but you know those those people have some kind of very serious psychological deficit or something that they even put that on the table. Um, and I continue to insist that you got to have cranberries with the skins on. And every year it seems like it's on the verge of like literal, you know, civil war within the family breaking out over cranberries. But thus far, we've been able to keep our differences civil. We'll see what happens this year. Do you make them from scratch? Absolutely. There's yeah. no other way to do it. How about you? I mean, well, anyway, what, what's your Thanksgiving? That's what we do. We make them from scratch. I don't, I'm not as like as strong. Like, I don't think people who take them from the can are psychos like you do, <laughs> but um, we definitely, yeah, we make them. It's one of those things I think that people like, and, until I watched my wife do it, I just sort of thought that must be kind of an elaborate thing to make homemade cranberries. It's really not. Um, so it's, it's, one of, it's one of those things once you learn how to do it, you're like, oh, this is actually really straightforward to make it really, you know, fresh and homemade and good. Um, uh, so any other, special, gotta, any other special food or tradition you've got going on this year? We do different things. My wife's family has some longtime uh, traditions that we've sort of adopted. Um, we've got a big group coming in. And so our big tradition is we were cooking for, I think, 16 or 17. It's going to be a really eclectic group with family. And my sister-in-law is coming in and um, uh, with her family. So it's going to be it's going to be great. And, you know, my girls are seniors. So we're also like. This is, you know, this is a, it's a nice one to have at home. Have everybody, have everybody here. Um, so that's what we're looking forward to in a couple, of, a couple of quiet, uh, a couple of quiet days with family. 
one of our traditions. We don't do it every year, but most years we do it. Go around the table. What's one thing that you're most grateful for this year? We do that. Um, as well, yeah. may, maybe to extend, um, maybe and to tie it into education policy or education developments. Do you, is there one development this year, Andy, you would say you are most grateful for? Hey, there, this is something inarguably positive that's happened in our world. Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I think there's a lot. Um, uh, at the national level, you're not seeing a lot that's inarguably positive. I think we all see that, and there's a lot of confusion, and we can and we can talk about that. I continue just though when you get down and you just get back out into schools. I mean, there's so much positive stuff happening, and people are working hard, and that's across the sectors. You're going to find that. You know, you're going to find that in public schools and charters, public charter schools. You're going to find that in private schools, um, and that's what kind of keeps me like the. the if you only if like an alien landed here and you only got the atmospherics of the national stuff, you would you would be neither like very thankful or very optimistic. But like it, it thankfully that's not like the sum the sum total. And so I'm just thankful for just like people are out there just every day trying to do really interesting stuff um, for kids. It isn't always you know the really fancy stuff, but it's blocking and tackling to to make things better for kids. So that 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 would be mine. What about you? Let me just ask one question on this, though. I, we, should I feel like we should rehearse this too, so I, I can I, I could give you like my compelling. Um, but you know, getting to spend time in schools, you you see it. So that is mine. Well, what are the routines that you use personally just to get into schools as much as you can? Uh, you know, I I'm now trying to make it a point every time I visit a new state. I was in Idaho and saw two extraordinarily great schools in Idaho. I was just blown away by them. But the week before I had been in Colorado and again, saw two great charter schools right in the Denver metro area. Um, and so just putting that- I asked, that I just asked. Just go, do you go? Yeah. You know? And look, it's harder now. Like, you know, when my kids were younger, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be traveling so much. So building that extra day and, you know, staying over, coming in early wasn't, you know, something I wanted to do as much now. That that's an easier thing to do. Um, uh, so yeah, I just ask, and I think there's two kinds of schools that are. It's interesting to visit schools where you've spent time and you've sort of seen an evolution, and then it's always fun to visit new schools and see uh, different kinds of things. And you know, I mean, the only school I've ever been like, hey, can I walk around? And and you know, obviously, if, you know, if if they know you and schools you visit and they trust you, you can just kind of go around. If not, they're going to send somebody with you, which is the responsible thing to do if they don't know you. Um, but the only school that's ever been like, oh, you can't just kind of, you have to do our tour. You can't just like go and like check out what's going on was a school we were considering sending my kids to a public school. And that was enough. I was like, yeah, no, um, like that's <laughs> like that lack of transparency and lack of like, and they had all these excuses and none of them were good excuses. Um, uh, and so I just ask, and I find most places are, I mean, look, if you've done this kind of work, like you and I have, there's ways you can visit schools and classrooms without being disruptive and, and making yourself, you know, the focal point of attention and so forth. And so, um, I find places that know that you're going to be able to conduct yourself appropriately are like more than happy to have you. And then you can really just sit in and watch what's going on. What about you? What, are, what tricks do you have up your sleeve? Well, um, school visits. Uh, look, I just can't keep leverage on myself unless I'm going there. And and I mean, it was great. I, I had a goal to visit all charter schools in California by the time I ended my service at CCSA, but we grew so many. I actually had, I, I visited almost 700, but by the end of the 
by time there, I had more schools to visit <laughs> than I had seen already. That's how fast we had grown. Um, but I just came away from those visits just full of energy and and um, and also just full of motivation. If there was anything from an advocacy perspective that was not being done well for these schools, oh my gosh, I would just be ready to like run through fire for these places. Um, but in terms of like being thankful for something in the landscape, I'm you know I'm kind of like you. I think that there are many things that I could point to, but there is one I believe that's above all others. And it's something that we focused on here during our wonky folk recordings. I do think that the, the third study from Credo showing the academic strengthening of a sector that's now grown to serve almost 4 million students. I think that is just a, an, a huge, huge accomplishment. And I know there are some that are quibbling with the data and, and they say, oh, the amount of positive benefit isn't that great statistically. Um, but I also feel like um, there are a lot of responses to that because these are these are data that show that every year that a student is in a charter school, they have this incremental additional learning. And almost all of them are spending more than many more than one year. Sometimes they're spending their entire 13 years within a charter school context. And you add up over that period of time, you know, that that incremental increase in support, it's just, uh, it's, I think, an amazing thing for our for our world to have accomplished. Um, it's, a, and I think it brings more oxygen into our room and makes us feel a, a, a greater sense of moxie to just keep going. Uh, but then also to have had Mackie here, uh, for, for first of all, for Mackie to have been able to do the study and to find enough access to enough data to get it done. And then to be such a great evangelist going around and talking about it in very compelling terms, as she did here at Wonky Folk, you know, you wrap that all together and I consider that a really big thing on the Thanksgiving table for the charter school movement to, to feel gratitude for. That's a really good one. That's a really good one. And I guess something else is on the theme of being thankful. Like that's a remarkable thing you just said, 700 schools. And like, I think I, I'm very thankful when you get out and you talk to people, you realize in, in jobs like you and I have had, you, you get to see a lot of stuff and you get a nice field of view. And so you can sort of see where things fit together and where they're divergent. And like, it's very frustrating to me that that is not the experience for the average teacher, average teacher leader. They get like a very sort of myopic training. And then basically, depending where you student teach and then where you end up teaching, often like very similar and homogenous kinds of experiences, and they don't get to see this range of things, which I think just as a professional, then you start to see, you know, different, first of all, things can be done different ways, but then also develop whatever your own preferences are about things that you think, you know, work or don't work in different situations. And the, and the way we sort of, we, 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 we treat teachers like, like almost like the DMV clerks um, or something. And, and, and that's really unfortunate. And so like, I think we should do something about that, but I'm also just thankful that I've had like those kinds of opportunities to hear you be like, yeah, I couldn't get to all of them, but I visited 700 schools. I mean, that's like a phenomenal, that's a phenomenal experience. Well, it was just a privilege. And and the privilege that I have right now is when, and you it seems as though you have this as well. When you call, people are like, yes, come, by, come on by. And I mean, I don't think it's wise to get anchored to a number, but I, I do confess and every once in a while, I think about, has anybody been in a thousand charter schools yet? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm, if you add up my CCSA time and what's happened since, um, but the most important thing is you, you've been in, you know, I've been in over well over 800 charter schools now 
uh, over 850 probably. But then to go to Idaho and to see across the entire state, they decided to make this residential facility where the, with the kids with the most severe mental health challenges that need you know around the clock assistance. They tried to do it within the context of a traditional public school and they were just being frustrated. And finally, they just said, wait a second, we have this just charter school law in the state and it clicks, it clicks. And they got something really neat happening there. And when you, when you go and see that and you say, hey, the charter school context is providing creative ways for us to solve problems within you know, public schooling that we just weren't able to do before. That's the kind of stuff that just puts the additional spring in my step and says, okay, wh whatever we got to do to make sure that more schools you know, like Idaho, Idaho Youth Ranch are, are able to flourish, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. So I don't know the people listening to this podcast to hear us talk about our numbers. So we probably <laughs> ought to, we probably ought to transition towards, uh, or that'll be a different podcast. Talk about um, transition towards education policy uh, uh, at some point. I mean, the thankful thing is, it's interesting after you said that, I was thinking I also like some people popped into my mind um, uh, who I think are doing cool. Like there, there is a lot, despite like the gloomy and some of the stuff we're probably going to talk about today. Like there's a, there's definitely a lot to be thankful for. And there's just some great people in the sector kind of just putting their shoulder to it uh, quietly and in, in really creative and intentional ways. Well, one of just, you know, making the transition further to just, you know, policy and education stuff, you and I had swapped some texts and, and emails about what's going on with, with CMO transition and, and leadership. I want to return, Andy, by the way, to the superintendent leadership challenge, uh, because there was a new article that was out that was published while I was gone that showed, you know, a, a group has really been, been deep and looked at the total number of superintendents in the country and was able to show what the turnover is there. And I think it might be something good for us to return to in December or sometime early. Yeah, December. we should talk about that. We should, and, and we, we can even get into that. I mean, what I was, the, the note I sent to you is a conversation I was having with a friend where we were talking about how like, you're seeing a fair number of successful leadership transitions just around the sector uh, in different kinds of organizations and things going pretty well. And also there's some, you know, some sort of merger and acquisition activity. And we see a lot of that because that's some of that stuff that we work on uh, at Bellwether. But we were saying like, you know, a lot of the CMO leadership transitions don't seem to have gone that well. And, and I think people can pretty quickly can think of, you can think of a few. And so that's why I sent you that note was like, hey, what's your take on this? And then, it, you know, it seems like something we should probably just talk about here. So I'll ask you the same question. Like, what is your, what is your take on what's happening with CMO leadership transition is sort of, you know, either the first generation or places that have had a leader in place for a long time and they're, and they're transitioning. So let me see. I just had a, can you still hear me uh, with, with this? Can you hear I can me? Hear you. Okay, good. I'm sorry. I, I had a little tech problem there. So I, I think that um, the CMO leaderships um, I, I think first of all, we've had significant turnover in our leadership. I don't think it's been nearly um, as disruptive as we've seen in, in many traditional public schools. Um, but we have had some that have worked out well and we've had others that haven't. And I'm really starting to think about what is it that has worked and not worked. And the, and the generalization I wanted to pressure test with you, Andy, is whether you are seeing that those organizations that prioritize promoting from within 
are actually having more success than those that are doing the search and bringing in, in people from, from outside. Because it certainly is my observation. This is anecdotal. I got no data. Um, but observationally, those that are promoting from within are having greater success and mitigating leadership transition risk in ways that the others aren't. It, 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 Anecdotally, that's what I see, but I don't, I'm not confident in that. Cause like, you, you know, th th this whole thing if, is, is impressionistic. So I would love to see some actual data on that question. I mean, look, it stands to reason if you, you know, you'd understand how schools operate, like it, 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 it which it, it stands to reason. And also that makes me want to check my own bias. Cause it just seems like that's in the intuitive thing. So to make sure we're not just getting a lot of confirmation bias because every time you see the promotion yeah. from within, you you, you notice it. Um, uh, but that, from an impression impressionistic uh, standpoint, that that seems. But why do you think? I mean, are in terms of some of the external ones that haven't gone well? Is it the wrong people? Is it the wrong transition model? Is it the wrong time? I mean, what, what do you? What do you, what do you, you know, is are, are boards dropping the ball? What do you, what do you infer as to, as to why we are seeing a lot of that? I think it's just a disconnect in strategy and understanding of their own organizations. We have these organizations that worked years to distinguish themselves from other traditional public school offerings. And they build whole cultures around this and they have operational aspects that are just consciously trying to be different. That often requires years to really understand what the different practice is. Like on school visits, I mean, going back to that for one, I mean, one thing that is an indicator of success, you've often talked about charter schools being places where we can be more intentional. We see intention play, at, play out in ways that we can't within traditional public schools. And what I'm always looking for in my first 60 seconds in a school is do I see something that is most likely intentional that I don't understand that all of them do, right? And then I ask the question and then they're boom, Oh, I see. I see. It's like going into the school Elevate in Idaho. They have a big purple curly slide coming right into the commons area, right? And of course, that's my first question. Why the heck do people have a purple slide coming into your commons area? Um, just a small example. But what happens is I think the the charter schools that really become unique, really become intentional, they don't even appreciate how different they have become from the public education mainstream, such that then when you wanna get your leader uh, and you go back into the education mainstream, or even if you recruit it from another charter school, but one that's very different from your own, that new leader coming in is just set up to not succeed from the very beginning. And my own sense is that we should continue to encourage our charter schools to be as innovative and different from other schools as possible, but also to make them recognize that from a leadership challenge perspective, that means makes it almost necessary that they're going to have to promote their future leadership from within. Do you think our boards paying enough attention to these questions of, of succession and thinking about who is the the leader or with everything going on? Is that like is it is it is it more just sort of hoping and praying? I don't really know, and I also don't really want to get overly down on those that are doing search and all that kind of stuff. Some of these people are my close friends, and heck, Molly, you know, she writes charter folk on the on the on the run or on the run charter folk on the move, right? And um, 
uh, I, of course, I, I, I value these people immensely in the contributions that they make. Um, but I also feel like sometimes boards just haven't thought about this enough proactively. And, and so then the leadership challenge happens. And the only way succession really works out is if people have done it far in advance, uh, you know, the planning far in advance. And I also feel like leadership transition requires requires real resources. Because I think the right way for most organizations to go through something like this is when the person, you know, the current leader leaves, can they not fully leave? Can they leave, can they take an emeritus position? Can they do it like a lot of law firms do, right? Where the, the partner emeritus stays there and watches whether or not the new partners can handle it. If so, then they leave, right? But what you have is this period then where you're basically double paying on leadership for some period. And um, and that can be really tone wrong and off-putting to teachers or others that see the administrative burden cost being too high. But I think that if the organization can talk about it enough in advance, five, six, seven years, we're pooling the resources so that transition will happen in a way such that we have no drama and no trauma and you will have an easy handoff and everybody continues to love their jobs around this place. I think that we could you know, tee these things up, but we're just not proactively having those conversations at the rate that we need to. Yeah, it's interesting. I I am not as sold as you are on that model. Just I feel like when you have a new leader, you have to actually give them room to lead. And I think one of the things we've seen in in in, in just some nonprofit and, and other transitions, else for profit sector, like if, if 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 it's not clear who's in charge or like you you don't have somebody who's in charge, it can get pretty. Um, it, it, the new person like they don't actually have the latitude to make the decisions and then be accountable for those decisions that they want to be. And it becomes sort of a shadow and depending on sort of how like effective the board is and, and what kind of governance um, sort of norms and culture you have that can get really messy fast. And so I'm more like, like, I think what, one of the best transitions we saw, I'll, I'll name somebody who's just terrific was like Katie Haycock. When she mm-hmm. left the education uh-huh. trust, she didn't like hang around looking over people's shoulders. She like, left and so um and you see that with like good superintendent transitions where they don't like linger around and sharpshoot the next person or you know talk to reporters you know anything like that i think those like you you need to have a good i I think you often just need to have a good clean um transition but that requires really effective governance to be in place and wrapped around requires a whole bunch of things that are not um uh that are not always um they're not always there well and i should also caveat what I'm saying here, what I'm talking about only works under a promote from within context where the trust is there and the organization actually wants the leader to be around, you know, half time to kind of help the the person who's coming from within be ready to fully take the reins. You have an emeritus sticking around to like oversee some person that's hired from the outside. Oh, now you got yourself a train wreck. Yeah. I don't even know on the inside though, if that's always, I think it depends on the, it depends on the person, how close they've worked together with the what the trust looks like. I think it, 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 it's very situational. Um, and maybe that's one of the takeaways is people don't always, uh, you know, and I even asked earlier, like to look for patterns, but like uh, it, it, these are very situational um, uh, kinds of transitions. Well, I think it points to, and there could very well be a lot of people already doing this. In fact, I'm sure there are, but um well, there's good. There's, I can certainly think of some good examples. There's definitely some big networks in California where you've seen like a, a good examples of that. Sure. Where people, they would kind of work themselves out of a job. 
So maybe we can find the people that are most obsessing on this particular um, topic and and learn from them sometime in 2024 because it seems like it's a it's a point of risk that we probably could take on in new and, and improved ways. Yeah, definitely. And there's just a lot of you know there's just a lot of sort of generational leadership transition happening. So yeah, we should we should definitely um, come back. But before we transition out for this one. Um, your own transition, like, were there any big ahas there that you came away with, or things you would have done differently, or big, like, big lessons when you reflect on that? Um, I think that, well, I don't want to pat myself on the back or what, um, but Mirna has taken CCSA after I left, and um, she had gone to great public schools now in Los Angeles, but she was also the person that that took the reins of CCSA when I went on my sabbatical. So I was constantly having that conversation with my board. Hey, if you get hit by a bus, uh, who is it? But not only do I have a conversation with the board, I mean, I had the conversation with Mirna, I had the conversation yeah. with our senior leadership team. Um, and uh, I think immodestly, it, it turned out to be um, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there also were some other things about that particular transition. They could have been done better if I had been even more thoughtful about it. But um, uh, it's yeah. funny to go there. That was a good one. I was thinking I was thinking uh, San Diego, but um, well, um, within well, that's a that's a different piece. And, and the leadership transition there was was different because I was in a different role. I was. Um, and so it was somewhat natural to hand off to people within the organization as well. But, um, I mean, you asked me about, I, I immediately thought you were talking about. No, I was thinking that because I, I feel like that you had the, you had the charismatic founder, um, you know, Larry's amazing guy. And, and, and then, but like you guys, it, it seemed like managed that it, it built out a team that was the, the school was not Larry dependent and has sort of been able to persist. Uh, at least that's what it looks like from the cheap seats. Well, they've um, had their challenges since Larry formally left, um, but I think they now are in a good place and it's taken a couple of years to get there, but they've, they've made that transition successfully now. And it's a very difficult one. There's all the other leadership transitions you have to think about as an organization yeah. gets more mature, but the, but the transition away from founder is perhaps, you know, the most difficult at all of all. Um, but, um, you know, hopefully high tech high is, is firmly on its feet now. We'll, you know, and we'll see. Cool. Okay. But, um, uh, but I wanted to, you know, in terms of like putting people on the spot about their, you know, specific context, let's, let's come back to Virginia here. And um, you and I were talking about the Virginia elections and we did some, uh, you know, I, I did some pontificating <laughs> on, on what I thought the election trends were going to be. Um, and now we've seen what these results have turned out to be. What, what's your shorthand on, on what we have to learn from the Virginia results? I can give you a one word shorthand. Okay. Abortion. There's your, there's your word. Um, that, I mean, I think that's the big, like, I, I'm actually a little bit, I think, you I mean, elections always matter, but I think people can overread what's happening with special elections. I think you can overread what's happening in Virginia because it's not, we're always off year, you know, um, people can overread the signals, but I think like this, that's a pretty clear signal, like, cause we were seeing it elsewhere and you saw it in Virginia um, and a bunch of the voting behavior, like abortion is a really salient issue. Um, uh, people don't trust the Republicans and they're not going to be able to win competitive 
races. They actually, the Republicans didn't do, the coverage was pretty bad. Um, less the coverage in the state, but the coverage nationally where it's like, oh, this big landslide and stuff. Like the legislature, there's 140 seats. They were split 70, 70 before the election. Now it's, you know, 68, 72. So the, Repu the, mm -hmm. the Democrats now have a one vote majority in both chambers and they flip the Senate. They, they were the Senate. They didn't have control going into the election. Um, so, I mean, those are not, those are not small things. On the other hand, those are not landslides. And when you look at how the votes were distributed around the state and so forth, like the, the, you know, redistricting plays a really big role. Um, and anywhere where you have competitive races, uh, abortion is going to be the salient, uh, issue until the Republicans figure out how to do something on that. And you saw that and you saw, I mean, you saw like, you know, fairly substantially flawed candidates perform pretty well, um, uh, and, and that's, you know, that, that all owes to abortion. All the ads were about abortion. And like, you know, afterwards, the Democrats were like, yeah, the issue was abortion. And yet the national, you know, chattering class wanted to make it about this, that or the, or the other thing. Um, uh, and like, there's just no evidence. It was it was it was uh, about uh, at, the, at the state level. I mean, there was some local school board races and stuff that obviously turned on education. But at the at the. Uh, at the so at the state level, it was it was all about abortion, and I don't know what the Republican plan to get out from under that, uh, you know, get that millstone off of them is. But it yeah. is uh, they have a they have they just have an enormous they have an enormous problem um, of their own creation, but a, but a real a real political problem. So that's so the we, you know yeah when we talked about it before it, um, we were I was commenting on hey people believe that the Dems are out of step with voters on school choice and people believe that the Republicans are out of step on abortion we'll see which out of stepness matters most and I think we've got our very clear answer on this one yeah I think this is such a salient issue people just and people what you can see is people just did not trust the Republicans on it and 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 because there was no clear bottom line. I think this is part of the Republicans' problem. No one knows what the bottom line is. And as you know, I mean, when you look at the polling on abortion, like people are very skeptical of third um, trimester uh, and are open to regulations there. And we were, that was the regime we were sort of living in under a row anyway. Um, uh, second trimester, the public's pretty split. And first trimester, the public's pretty strongly in favor of, you know, a woman should be able to make her own reproductive decisions. And the politics are sort of going in such a way that the, the Republicans cannot even like draw a firm line around that first trimester issue. You're seeing Nikki Haley try to do it. Um, and until they do that and figure something out there, they will continue to lose elections. And I, I, it's a little like you, people in education want to like, everything's about it. It's not, this is a, this is a political fight that's happening elsewhere. It has big implications for governmental politics. And so it, it's, it's important in that way to what we do in our sector. But like the idea that education is driving any of this, it's, it's, it's not. Um, and, and you saw that interestingly in some polling, there was a New York times column. I forget who wrote it. It was like, this is a huge repudiation of, you know, of uh, a bunch of things, um, you know, that Glenn Youngkin's doing or whatever. And in fact, if you looked inside the polls, the public's like, you know, he, he, he's actually closer to the public on a bunch of stuff than the democratic position, but it doesn't matter because abortion. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's, it's obscuring abortions, obscuring everything. Um, and again, but, you know, until they, until they figure that one out, um, you know, you know, we'll see at the national level, does that translate to presidential? I don't know, but like in, in consequential races, uh, at, at the state level where this thing is, is any kind of a jump ball, uh, it seems to really matter. 
Well, to wrap things up, I want to pivot back to a polling question as it relates to education, because there was one article that came out while I was on the Camino that if I had been home, I definitely would have just dove right into. But before I get to that, I, um, what, what, how do you explain the problem, quote unquote, in polling that seemed to be demonstrated in the November elections in that people just didn't see this result coming that, and people aren't saying to the pollsters um, what uh they are are actually demonstrating when they when they vote any any observations on that i disagree i actually think the polling it was close and people knew it would be pretty close but like there, there wasn't a ton of surprise um and i actually think the last couple of elections the polls have actually been better than people think um i think part of our problem is this vibes driven um uh approach to things i wrote about that with the, the guy and the coverage on virginia where like it was, was just divorced from the actual data but you saw that like even back in 2016 like the polls were not i mean there were there's definitely there was a hidden trump vote and people were surprised but you know going into the election like it polls were indicating it was potentially gonna be a close election and you know that there was at least you know at least a one in three chance that donald trump was going to win the thing was nobody could believe that they couldn't get themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, and so the data uh, on that kind of polling, I think people are actually in, you know, in Virginia, the polls, you know, and, and same thing with what just happened in, um, uh, uh, in 2022, like the Republican vibes were that they were going to pick up all these seats. But if you looked at the data, the races looked reasonably close and, you know, and ended up breaking their way again, abortion being a, so, so my my shorthand that generally there was some polling that was coming out that was favorable to Republicans and Trump's beating Biden and all the uh, swing states and then Democrats had a you know compared to that had a surprisingly good uh, turnout that that's our good result well, that's, that's not the right. Yeah. No, I mean, look, Trump wasn't on the ballot in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin wasn't on the ballot in Virginia. People want to make this about all these other things. Biden wasn't on the ballot in in Virginia. This was about. Who was going to control the legislature when abortion was a was a huge issue? I feel like that's I guess that may be part of the problem. We tend mm -hmm. to overread. It's entirely possible that like two things can be true. Joe Biden has a political problem in 2024, and Democrats did well um, uh, in Virginia in 2023. Those those things they're not. That doesn't have to be to be one or the other. And as I said a minute ago, how the abortion thing translates at the national level will be interesting uh will be interesting will be interesting to watch um uh so yeah no, i think I, I don't think i think it's more um uh you know you always get like outlier polls and so forth but in general um i think you get you get good directional stuff and you can start to see things kind of converge now the flip side of that is this interesting dynamic that we see in education i know you're very interested in which is like parents tell everybody that they're you know reasonably happy with schools yeah. overall but then there's two other data points that are very interesting. One is when you focus group, you get an earful. Um, yep. And as soon as there's like a safe permission structure, then people are like, oh, here's all these things I don't like. And then also um, uh, revealed sort of preference through behavior. Like people are, <laughs> when they're offered options, they take them. Um, they're, you know, um, not everybody, like, you know, ESAs are not gonna sort of evacuate the public schools, but. But you know, some set, set segment of people, charter schools continue to be you know popular, and um, you know voucher programs and so forth. And uh, and so like squaring that circle is kind of interesting. I mean, some of it's the basic thing we have where people say, like, I love you know, 
I, I hate Congress, but I like my member. And you know, they say right. they, 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 they don't like schools, but they like, although that Congress one, we all use as a cliche. I just did it. That number's actually changing. People are pretty appalled. Oh, really? Yeah, people are pretty frustrated with Congress. With, with <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, come on, how could you not be? Um, uh, but you still see that thing where you'll give your own schools a pretty high grade, you know, the traditional way to ask is the school your oldest kid attends, and then, um, but you give them overall. Um, but I think that may be masking uh, some stuff because we're seeing in reveal, we're seeing with, with revealed behavior, people are looking for options yeah. and they're looking for other things. Now, the yeah. one thing, the last thing, and then I, I want to hear you keep in mind on this, these things always conflate. And this is the problem, like in politics, it's like we always use the wrong track, right track numbers, you know, and like, mm -hmm. like it's entirely possible, like you, you go ask voters right now, is the country on the right track or the wrong track? You are going to get voters in that wrong track number who, who think, it's on the wrong track because Joe Biden's not able to do all the things he wants to do and the Republicans are stopping him. And you're going to get people who are like, the country's on the wrong track because of Joe Biden. And I don't like that. And, you know, all those people are mashed into those numbers. And it's the same thing with schools. And so you're getting people who are that, you know, the, to the extent people are frustrated, they're not all frustrated about the same stuff. Some think the schools need to go further right. Some people think they need to go further left. They need to change this and that. It's a, it's a, you know, all that gets all that gets bundled up in that like level of they're not all dissatisfied about the same stuff. Well, that article I was referring to was one that Matt Barnum at uh, Chalkbeat wrote. Uh, it was around September fifteenth. It was right when I was leaving, and it showed that from a polling perspective, the public's satisfaction with public schools has degraded significantly, but parents report. In, in the same numbers, satisfaction with public schools as they ever have. And from that, then Matt suggests that the only people that are talking about parents being unhappy about things are, you know, pundits like me. And um, and so, I mean, Matt, Matt's an incredibly smart guy, and I really um, appreciate his reporting. He's just so consistently thoughtful. I don't agree with every article by any means. But this is one where I just feel like there is a disconnect between not only what we're getting in this last round, but what we get in general from parents. And like you're talking about, what are the observed behaviors? When we see Iowa project what the number of parents would be who would have taken advantage of a voucher, and they build their state budget around right. that number, and then the numbers are just way, way larger than they projected. Yeah, yeah. And and they cut it off. If they had actually let it go for another few weeks, goodness knows what the numbers would have been. So it seems to me that we're seeing some once in a generation, very big changes in policies that are happening, especially in these red states where they're now doing ESAs and vouchers for Absolutely. large numbers of parents. And it seems to me as though this is a place where pollsters should really be diving in. Okay. In Iowa, where were public, where, what were people saying? What were parents saying about their options at that point? Um, which ones actually chose to try to make use of the voucher? And what does that reflect about what they really believed about their own schools? And then can we extrapolate anything out from these experiences um, where we're seeing the big shift in policy to other contexts where we really more deeply need to understand what, what parents are thinking about public education these days? Yeah. I think um, uh, I think you've got um, I think you're on to something and there there is the, if the preferences are muddled 
Um, and I do think we need to figure out some other ways, other ways to be asking these questions. I mean, there are some polls that do a nice job with like A-B testing and ask and give parents different information or, or, or do ask some, but um, uh, I think there's work, I think there's work to be done there. And I'm still continually struck between the difference with interviews, focus groups and, 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 and polls when there's a permission structure for people to actually really be candid. And it may also be, look, you know, people often when they're being polled in my experience, they also, they, sometimes they know what they're being asked and right. like, are you being asked, like, do you support the public schools? And people do, it doesn't mean you're happy with them and so forth. Um, but if you're being asked to grade them, do you support your local public schools? And people are like, yeah, the last few years have been rough and I support them. I mean, you saw this, like, um, I think this was like one of the most pronounced things uh, that you saw, this was a while ago now, but when Clinton was, was impeached, you saw nobody could understand why his approval ratings were going up, but they were probably going up because voters knew when you're being asked about job approval, what they're really asking is, do you think the president should be impeached? And people didn't, they weren't, they weren't. And then you'd ask a bunch of sub questions that people weren't happy with his conduct. They weren't happy with what he'd done. Um, and they would give him terrible marks on all that kind of stuff, but they give him high on job approval. Cause it was like, yeah, they knew they, what they were really being asked is, do you think he should still be president? And their answer was yes, I do. Um, uh, I don't think he should be. I don't think he should be removed from office. And I think the Republicans are overreaching. That's what they were basically saying. And well, I think I think you have some of the same. I think you have some of the same um, same thing going on here. And then you also have a layer of cognitive dissonance, which is like it's hard to like. You're really going to say, yeah, no, my kid's schools, you know, not working and so forth. Um, uh, you're starting to see. I mean, they, there are some shifts. That that one thing on giving your kids school higher grades. We saw some shifts. Um, Particularly among African Americans, that number started to drop. So people are people are aware of, of, of some of the challenges, but I still think that that that's a hard thing, and and, and that shows up. And so it's, I don't think there's any one thing, but some different things show up in that um, uh, show up in that polling and how we should think about it. But the biggest one being what you said, revealed preference. What should what should terrify people who support public schools? Who I count myself as one is just that issue of when people are offered options even in some cases where those options aren't as quality as what they're getting they take them like any other industry you'd be you know that that's what would keep you up at night and we just sort of you know we just sort of whistle past the graveyard on that stuff yeah and i think the subtext of the questions for parents it's this is cognitive distance but just put a little bit more specificity into it it's really a difficult thing for a parent to continue to to report that i'm doing a good job of parenting and to at the same time say i have my child in an educational setting that's not optimal or not good for them right and so it seems to me as though we should find some better way to be able to ask that question or those questions maybe focus groups are the only way we're ever really going to be able to elicit the kind of vulnerability and honesty that we need uh, from parents um, maybe over time what we can do is just get to a place where people actually have enough choices and the cognitive distance doesn't matter anymore because there's enough behaviors to measure that that will be the barometer that we will all ultimately trust. And these are local things. I just did a um, LinkedIn thing yesterday with Christine Pitts and Andy Jacob, who are both education experts and they're Portland public school parents. And one thing they were both sort of saying, both as we were getting ready for it beforehand, and and, and I think, you know, they, they, they gave some voices is during the LinkedIn is, it's also hard like there's there's social pressure and so forth and so people yeah. and they're like there's this and you know chris christine was saying you know she gets lots of communication with people who are really frustrated with the strike but they're not going to say that um because they can't for for yeah. professional or social reasons and and that you know that's an issue 
Um, tying this back to Virginia, the big thing we saw in Virginia, I think, when I look at the results of like the school board races, was like a yeah. clear message what voters want is they want you to be normal. Like the, the most bombastic characters on both sides were getting white were getting wiped out. Um people like I think people like you know the the fringe of both parties is is are yeah, you know, they're totally addicted to drama around the schools, but the average parent they that is not what they want they want their schools they want people to act normally and run good schools and they're not they're not on board with this stuff well maybe the polling that you know i'm most interested in right now as we wrap this thing up is what our viewers going to think of your wkrp t-shirt <laughs> we, we have to find we can put that on the show notes that is one of the classic uh i mean every every wkrp episode is a is a gem but that was you know the 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 thanksgiving turkey drop uh one is is absolutely legendary that's like I'm pretty sure that's in Edie Hirsch's. I think that's in the the. I think that's in in the cultural literacy book. If it's not, it was, <laughs> you know, if it's not, it was clearly just an oversight. Um, we should, I'll, I'll I'll send it to Don and ask him uh, if, if what you know if, if he included it. Um, yes, yeah, so I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Hey, you know we're we're gonna wrap up twelve uh, recordings this year, and uh, I will say there are many times when I was walking, and since then I I consider wonky folk and having a chance to talk to you once a month uh, quite a thing to be grat grateful grateful for. So yeah, thanks, no, I'm you know, thankful for that. It's been fun. Yeah, no, I'm thankful for that. And we get we get good feedback. Our our listenership, we have a, a small but mighty listenership that does uh, appreciate just appreciates listening to these things get talked about without people yelling at each other and ripping their faces off we should i'm thankful for all the guests we have that came on that helped with that and i'm looking for sure. forward to more more of uh more of them all right great well listen you have a great holiday i look forward to seeing you next month you as well i'll see you uh, i'll see you after the break okay see you Andy. bye bye, bye, -bye.